I'm joined by Katie Sandford, who is a multi-talented young lady. Um, she is a writer who utilizes her experiences uh, with mental and emotional um, wellness like schizoaffective disorder to break down stigma through speaking and writing, uh, including in her blog, Not Like the Others. She is a very prominent mental health advocate as well. And I've read some of her writing and I think it's, it's brilliant. Um, so Katie, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your journey. So um, I have struggled with mental illness from like a really young age. Um, it started out with OCD and depression. And I, at that age, like I didn't know what mental illness was. So um, I just thought it was like character flaws or something that I did that caused it. But um, when I was 17, the summer before my senior year of high school, the depression sort of shifted into this weird numbness that became really disabling. And it was at that point that I decided I had to ask for help. Um, and shortly after that, I started hallucinating. And then I got my initial schizophrenia diagnosis, which was later updated to schizoaffective, which for anyone who doesn't know is kind of a combination of like schizophrenia and a mood disorder. So in my case, that's depression. So I have all the symptoms of depression and all the symptoms of schizoaffective disorder. Um, but it's, it's been challenging but I've been able to do really well with it. So I um, graduated with my degree in psychology from Northwestern University. I've held down a bunch of different jobs and I'm currently uh, a legal assistant in addition to all my advocacy. That's an amazing journey. So um, let's, let's start from the beginning. So when you were a child and you were experiencing these symptoms, um, how were you able to sort of firstly cope with it and communicate with others about these or were you able to and and what what were what sort of coping strategies did you utilize my coping strategies were pretty much shove it down and pretend it's not real because i thought that people would be upset with me if they found out they they'd somehow reject me because there was something wrong with me and um and so i really kept it pretty much to myself. I kind of tried to drop hints here and there, but it was really, really difficult for me. So most of what I ended up doing was um, ultimately finding a group of friends who I felt I could trust to talk about it. Um, but as a really young kid, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I, I think you're being incredibly brave and it's so important to try, find that tribe, that uh, community support, you know, uh, who are able to really look out for you. I want to ask then, taking that transition from childhood, what was that turning point where you were able to really sort of understand and at what age and how did it come about? It really didn't come about until um, I was 17 because even in high school, like I was very interested in psychology. I had a special interest in schizophrenia, but I never registered that what I was experiencing was obsessive compulsive disorder or depression at the time. I remember... I would joke about my, you know, OCD-like behaviors and things like that, but it never, I didn't have a family history of OCD, and it just never clicked that that could really be truly what it was. And even with the depression, I would look at people who, you know, were medicated for it and had the official diagnosis, and I would think, like, I wish that was me, you know, I wish, I didn't want depression, but I wanted there to be a fix, I wanted there to be a reason it wasn't something wrong with me. And so the the real turning point was when I got that numbness and it was so debilitating 
that I was barely sleeping, like maybe two hours a night. I was having trouble eating. I, it just became so difficult to get up off the couch and do anything that I, this isn't, I didn't have this great, you know, sort of uh, revelation of like taking care of myself. It, it was so I could keep hiding it because all my life I had been hiding all of my illnesses and all of my symptoms and things. And it got to the point where I realized if I didn't do something, I would be so unable to function that people would find out. So I thought, okay, I'll go get treatment quietly and we'll fix everything and then we'll go back to normal life. And it's just not quite how it worked out. And, and what did that treatment look like? What did that initial treatment look like? And what impact did it have on you? We started out with um, therapy and then pretty quickly after that, the therapist um, referred us to a psychiatric nurse practitioner and we did um, lots of questions, lots of medications and changing medications. So originally I started on antidepressant um, as well as an as needed thing for anxiety and something to help me sleep. And as things kept evolving, we kept shifting it though. I mean, some of it was changing just because it's hard to find the right medication you know, right off the bat. So I went through a couple antidepressants and then, um, yeah, things started to sort of shift when the hallucinations started. And that was when the antipsychotics and mood stabilizers kind of really came into play. So you, you, I mean, you were an incredibly tenacious young lady, you know, you researched, you sort of, um, sort of that sort of turning point did come where you sort of accepted that, you know, th this is a journey that you're going on to, but there is a solution to every problem. And I think this is incredibly inspirational. My mother had schizophrenia. I was a young carer for her. And it, it resonates with me what you said about when you're a child, you don't know, you're not able to communicate Sometimes you're not able to make sense of things and you're so vulnerable. And I would say you are still a vulnerable young adult because you are still on your journey. And at times I have felt because I was a young carer and I had to be a mother to my mother uh, in, in effect, uh, there was that vulnerability. And although we, we learn certain skills, there are other skills that take us some time to sort of learn. Um, you talked about masking you know, in your teenage years, you know, masking some of the symptoms, I think, would you say some of that would be sort of overcompensating? You know, I was very embarrassed about uh, my mother having schizophrenia, so I would make jokes at myself, I would try to utilize humor to deal with that, so uh, did, you, did you feel that, you know, that sense of, um, not control, but that, 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 that sense of sort of humor and really um, trying to bring in everything to yourself and trying to do as much as you can um, to sort of deal with it. And how was it, with, how was it for you? Because I can, Im I can imagine that's an incredible lot of uh, pressure to deal with as a young person. Yeah, before the onset of the psychosis, um, I sort of created this persona. Um, I spent a lot, many years um, doing stuff with theaters uh, on stage and backstage. And so it was easier for me to sort of fabric, you know, create this, I, this identity. And it was, you know, this girl who was confident and she, you know, was kind of edgy and she knew what she wanted and she didn't care what anybody else thought. And none of it was really true, but that's sort of how I handled it was to just create a person who could handle it. Um, and then I would make jokes about my OCD constantly about, oh, you know, just doing this again or whatever. Um, after the onset of the psychosis, I compensated by trying to be 
the best at everything. I had to be the best student. I had to be the best athlete. I had to be able to be better than the people who didn't have a mental illness to fight against. It's, it's very interesting what you said. Um, I wanted to ask then, because you, you sort of trying to, you know, um, in those early years, trying to, like you said, a persona, did you feel that was as a result of people's behaviors? Because um, sometimes mental illness is seen as a taboo and people can be quite cruel. They can be quite cruel in the sense that they seemingly want to help. They appear to help, but, you know, you're getting little digs. And I found this as well. I found, you know, dealing with certain things, even in my own ethnic community, I was getting these digs and these digs were coming from young women <laughs> Uh, out of all, out of strangely enough, you know, <laughs> these young women who I expected would be supporting me, there were these slight digs coming, and it was just, it was a, it was a really uh, a, a, a turning point for myself to think, well, hold on a second, where is that sense of compassion, you know, where is that empathy that you are so ready to show the world that you have, but where is it in practice? So. I just want to know, how was it experiencing, you know, other people's reactions to it? And how, and I, I'm sure there were, I'm sure there were people that were incredibly kind. There were people that were incredibly supportive. I'm sure there was a, a lot of mentorship because I personally received that as well. But overall, the not so kind uh, reactions, what were they like and how did you deal with that? Um... Before the onset of schizoaffective disorder, um, that's kind of what prompted me to create that persona was that in junior high, um, I wasn't, I was so focused on just getting through the day that like, it didn't matter. You know, I, I wore lots of horse shirts because I was kind of a horse girl. And so that was like my safety net and, and people could see that, you know, maybe I was a little bit sad sometimes and things like that. And people would comment on that. And then I got teased for the way that I looked and the way that I acted. And so that sort of prompted that persona. I basically just decided I didn't want to be that girl anymore. And then after the onset of um, schizoaffective disorder, um, I was very careful who I told at first. Um, very, very careful because it there's a a dangerous aspect to it because with stuff like schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder and plenty of other disorders as well, um, there are people who really think horrible things about people who have those um, illnesses. And so I was very careful in, um, in college. But what I found mostly was what or what offended me the most were the people who treated me like I was a bomb about to go off when they, you know, they wouldn't make digs at me necessarily, but it was, you know, just very clearly like they were afraid of me. And that, that was tough to handle. And um, that was part of what inspired me to really start talking about it because I was thinking like, this is ridiculous. You shouldn't be afraid of me. You should have, you have no reason to be afraid of me or anyone else who has schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, at least no more than, you know, a stranger on the street. So that was, um, that kind of prompted me to do that. And because I was, I was offended by it at first. I was very upset. And um, as much as I loved my university, they did do that to me. They treated me like I was, you know, this huge risk to campus. And, um, so it was, um, it was hard, but I think at that point, mostly I just, 
I got angry about it and I want to do something to, to change their minds. Um, that completely resonates. And, you know, sometimes you kind of wish that people just were honest and just asked you, you know, <laughs> rather than sort of thinking, walking on eggshells, you know, you would just rather expect people to be honest, to reach out to you and sort of say, well, this is what I'm perceiving. Is this real? And just having that simple, honest, raw conversation would have made the world of difference. I know it would have made a world of difference to me as a young girl, um, as a young carer, and I'm sure, you know, to, to yourself as well. So um, when you started sort of getting angry and, you, you know, you were thinking about what you needed to do, what were those initial things that you sort of did to make a change and the impact that they had? Um, the first step was probably joining um, a, our, the, my school's chapter of um, Active Minds. So we were at NU Active Minds. Um, and that was where like, I really, I, I came into it with just this fiery passion of like, I'm going to make change. I'm going to do something. And the club was really just getting off the ground. So, um, they weren't quite prepared at first. Um, but otherwise after that, I think it was the next year I spoke for the first time publicly about living with schizoaffective disorder, um, for, um, an event that the club put on. And so it was probably in front of like somewhere between like 40, maybe 60 at the most people. And it, it was pretty incredible. But the other thing that changed too, that really kind of was a big move for me devotion wise was that I actually went into my school with uh, uh, the plans to do a double major. I went in under, under psychology and my plan was to do music business as well. And psychology was just for funsies. I just, you know, enjoyed it. And music business was really going to be my focus. But after seeing, you know, having these interactions and getting angry and wanting to make a change, I just completely focused on psychology, didn't ever bother to pick up music business as another major. Um, and so that was really a big, a big shift for me to go from something creative to something sciencey as like a full on uh, major and career choice. But you held on to the creative aspect. I see that, um, you know, you've recently been chosen for the layered onion as well, which is a you know, huge achievement. So well done on that. So tell us a little bit more about your artwork and how that relates to your advocacy for mental health. I have been doing all sorts of artwork related to my experiences since probably college. In, um, in my senior year, I was able to take some art classes. And so I took drawing, I took sculpture, and I took photography. And in each of them, <laughs> I subjected all of my classmates to projects based specifically about mass illness. In drawing, I drew the hallucinations that basically haunted me. Um, in uh, sculpture, I did a stone carving of um, a certain kind of knot that's very difficult to untie. Um, sort of just that's how it felt was that, you know, there was no way I was going to untie this mental illness. It was there for good. And it was just about accepting that. And in photography, um, I did a final project where I had actually had an episode of psychosis during that um, during that year and while I was in that class, too. So I went back afterwards and I took photos of all of the places that I saw things or heard things and then wrote little descriptions of it. And so my class got to go see all of that, including a photo of our classroom door because I had heard music while we were in there working. And so that was a. Uh, interesting for them to sort of um, kind of 
process, I guess. Uh, I got really good feedback, but you could tell they didn't really know what to do with it at first. And then after college, um, I'd always been interested in writing. I've been doing free writes and things like that, you know, just sort of stream of consciousness sorts of things since probably junior high, maybe, maybe earlier. Um, but after college, I really started writing about it heavily, but I didn't actually start the blog until um, about two, a year and a half, almost two years ago. This is amazing. Um, you know, uh, when you talk about the knot, the sculpture knot, do you, did you find, because sometimes I think when we do art, when we create, our subconscious is speaking onto the artwork, you know, a part of our soul, I suppose, is, is, is coming on reflective onto the artwork. So that knot, and I can completely relate to that, and I think it's such a powerful Im image. What happened to that knot, Katie, and were you able to sort of, you know, through the passage of time, were you able to sort of unravel parts of it? I think so. I think um, I felt for a very long time, probably up until the last couple of years, honestly. Um, so I've been living with schizoaffective disorder for almost 14 years. And so I would probably say about two years ago, maybe three years, I started really focusing on it and not running away from it because for the whole rest of my time with the disorder, I kept thinking like I could outrun it. You know, if I just kept working, if I kept up in school, if I kept being the best at things, if I kept acting like nothing was wrong, then it would just go away because I was so afraid that it would be that knot, that it would come get me and it would take me and I would just be kind of just succumb to it and have no semblance of a normal life and just be entrenched in my symptoms and the hallucinations and things. And so a couple of years ago, I I don't even know necessarily what triggered it, but I started talking about it. And I mean, I'd always been in therapy the whole time and I've been seeing my psychiatrist for years now, um, this particular one that I'm with now. But I started saying things that she was thinking like, she would say, you know, you've never said that before. You've never talked about this before. And it's things that happened very far in the past. And so, I, yeah, I don't know what, what really switched, but I started talking about everything behind it. I stopped protecting myself from these things that I didn't want to think about that I didn't want to admit um, and things like that and that really was a, a very huge turning point for me and I think that's what allowed me to start the blog too because I finally felt like I could really talk about it because before I had started at least two other blogs and never launched it because I was so afraid of judgment I was afraid of dealing with it myself as well um, so that that was a huge huge change for me um, and really opened me up to a lot more more public advocacy. You know, it, it's one thing to do it on your campus, but to go out and have complete strangers from who knows where, you know, read your read your things and look at your art is totally different. And you make you you are making an impact. That for sure, you are making an impact. You know, uh, which is great to see. Um, so there's a few things I want to um, ask you. I, I want to just touch upon that. When you talked about therapy, you know, you talked about there were certain things that you can talk about at certain times. So, which I suppose for for us as humans, there are layers. You know, there are layers and layers and layers, and there are certain memories that surface at certain points. Um, you know, it's not like you can go from A to B and just completely have everything out. I don't I don't think for anybody that's the case, you know, certain scents, certain sights, the breeze, you know, certain places that you go to, 
they will evoke certain memories, certain insights, and also a certain age as well. What we see from our eyes as children to what we recollect as adults, that also has this particular angle. So, I mean, I completely, I completely agree with you on that. How did you feel as an adult now? The reactions of other people around you, those that were supportive and those that were not so and still treating it as a tribute? Um, I am definitely thankful for the people who are supportive. Very, very thankful. Um, there is still for me a lot of fear around being, you know, anything discriminated against, made fun of, anything like that. Um, and I have a harder time dealing with it when it happens, but I do try to sort of channel that whatever feeling it creates, sadness, anxiety, feelings of rejection. I try and channel that into my writing and other artwork and just speaking and anything I'm doing. And so I will actually um, take things that happen, interactions that I have with other people that are uncomfortable or, you know, discriminatory. And I will put that into what I talk about. So one of the places where I speak most commonly is um, for sheriff deputies and um, police officers. And I have had interactions with people that then inspire me to sort of mention a certain thing or talk about something in a different way when I go speak to the police officers, because their interactions with people with mental illness are so intense that if I'm having, you know, this, this moment with someone, you know, that I find intense, it's obviously going to be even more for them. So I try and use it um, as a way to direct my advocacy into the directions that I feel, you know, have, that are lacking, that need more attention, or, you know, even if it's not necessarily lacking, just that really need someone to stand up and talk about it. Um, so that's kind of how I use that. But I have definitely, when friends stop showing up and, you know, things like that after you tell someone. Um, it definitely still hurts, but yeah, I used to sort of direct my advocacy where I think it needs to go. And, and you're a brave young lady making impact. I mean, certainly, you know, venturing out into the criminal justice system as well, uh, where I, there does actually, even in England, there does need to be more understanding of how the just, not just the criminal justice system, but um, you know other aspects um, of govern governance, how mental illness and people with people that have mental illness and people that have cared for you know people with mental illness are not only treated, how they're heard, how they're spoken to. We hear a lot of marketing. I have to say, you know, there is a lot of marketing about uh, mental health. Uh, there's a lot of marketing about well-being and wellness. And when you actually um, when you actually sort of think about where we need to work on that, the practical aspects of things, there is actually a lot of work that needs to be done. And it's people like you, Katie, that are making an impact, you know, what they can do and where they can do. Um, I think it, it is. Uh, let's move on to your blog. I read some of your entries. I was incredibly inspired. You're very honest. Um, they're very detailed. They're very thoughtful um, and tenacious. There's a lot of resilience, a lot of resilience that's coming through, which is good to see. 
because we need to hear narratives like this. You know, mental well-being isn't this fluffy little thing that um, we can talk about one day and we can kind of, you know, promote for a day or so. It's actually a lifelong journey. And I personally think that we are all on a spectrum. You know, everybody, uh, everybody's had a bad day. Everybody's had an illogical thought. There has, there has been nobody that has escaped that. So when we turn it into a taboo, you know, it's actually a projection. It's actually a projection of, of people's own internal states rather than, you know, rather than, rather than anything else. So tell us a lot about your blog. Um, how did you start? Where is it heading to? Uh, you know, what, 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 what plans do you have for it for the future as well? It's um, it's been kind of a journey getting it set up and sort of figuring out where I'm going with it. So it took a lot of false starts and you know a lot of effort to really put up the first couple of posts. And I was very very nervous about what people would think, um, but it it went pretty well. And so I I kept going and I got to the point where I felt like you know, even if only one person reads it, then that's still something valuable. That's still something that, that counts because one person has now, you know, heard that thought, they've read that thought, they've, you know, taken in what I had to say, even if it's something they already knew, it's a nice reminder. And as I started getting more in, in depth with my advocacy, speaking and talking to other advocates and things, um, I started being able to sort of direct where I was writing based off of where I thought things, you know, needed to go and things that inspired me um, and things were, you know, I thought that it needed um, a bit more explaining or that people didn't necessarily understand. So I realized that um, a lot of the sort of mystique or whatever around mental illness is that people don't, don't know what it feels like. I mean, why would you, if you've never felt, you know, suicidal, you wouldn't know if you've never had a hallucination, how would you know? So I started writing, um, these pieces that were just sort of internal looks of how I experience certain symptoms, which of course is just my experience. My, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but um, it, it seemed to to help people, especially um, caregivers. I had a great um, response from caregivers about those posts about how they, you know, it helped them understand their loved one a little bit better, um, which was great because I feel like caregivers are left behind so often. You're so forgotten in everything, especially with stuff like schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder, because after a certain point, you know, if someone's already over 18 in the U.S., at least, you can't do anything. You know, the doctors can't listen to you and all of that. So I, I imagine there is a very strong feeling of helplessness. And so I thought if I can write things that would, you know, help everybody, but that would really help them feel a bit better about what was going on or what they were witnessing, you know, kind of put them at ease and help them understand and then of course help everyone else understand too that that would be a good direction to go so I kind of found all sorts of like little mini paths of where to go um and sometimes what I write doesn't get a great response but sometimes it's what I need to write it's what I need to put out there what I feel is important even if nobody else recognizes it as kind of it as such um so it, it's been kind of figuring out where I'm going and realizing that I can go in multiple directions at once and I, in the future um, I do plan to continue it. I had a, a little streak of where I wasn't writing as much because I got bogged down in um, TikTok. I started making videos on TikTok and that 
really took off. <laughs> so I'm back at writing for the blog though again, which is really, I think, speaking and writing are my, my most, um, the, the things that I'm most passionate with, I think, because I feel like I can make the greatest change. The videos are fun, but um, but I I feel like writing and speaking are so powerful. And, and you are very eloquent, you know, in, in terms of um, your experiencing, uh, experiences, sharing your experiences. And it is, it is, like I've said before, it is making an impact, um, you know, because you are, sometimes you talk about daily moments and, you know, this is something that's not very well known, not in the mainstream, you know, when we talk about mental illness, we talk about labels, we talk about big words, but what is that essentially that human perspective behind that? And you're providing that human perspective, which is really, really nice to see. Um, so what are your plans for the future overall? You know, what are, what are your dreams um, as Katie, as a person? Um, I'm not really sure at this point. Um, I, a few months ago, I had another episode and it was, um, the first one that I had, um, outside of school where I was, you know, working full time and out and, you know, in the world kind of as a functioning adult or functioning adult. Um, and, um, it, it was really difficult for me to, function through it. And of course it was right in the middle of the pandemic too, which didn't help. Um, and so it, it sort of made me step back and think about what's realistic. I had been planning on, um, the, taking the LSAT and studying to go to law school. And I had to really come to terms with the fact that, um, that that might not happen. And it doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but I can't, you know, I have to work with what I've got right now. And what I had at that moment was, you know, I just wasn't functional enough to do that. And um, so I'm kind of learning how to take it one step at a time. I would love to do advocacy full time, um, but it's tough to make a, tough to make a living on that. Um, so I'm, I'm just hoping to continue to be more and more involved with advocacy. I'd love to do more speaking over, you know, a larger crowd because I really feel like you that face-to-face -face just is so strong and so powerful and makes such a big difference in being able to answer people's questions, you know, in real time and right, right in front of them. Um, and thankfully I have a job that is very, very supportive of that. And they're very, very supportive of me um, just in general with all of the sort of special needs that I have. They've been great at accommodating me and, um, and yeah, they're very supportive of my advocacy. So I, would not be upset if I stay for a, a long time with them. Um, but in my, you know, dream world, I do advocacy full time. That's amazing. And that's, um, it's, it's heartening to know the support that you're getting. It's brilliant because it's allowing you to make those meaningful, that meaningful impact. Um, so, you know, this is, you have so many ideas. You are doing so much, multi-talented. Would you, would you, think, I mean, listening to you, looking at your work, I would say when you said initially it was a persona where, you know, you were able to excel in different fields, I personally feel that wasn't a persona, that was a real Katie, you know, you're amazing, you, you have done and achieved so much more 
despite the challenges, despite the obstacles, that a lot of people with a lot of high intense resources are not able to do so. So um, I always have this outlook, you know, your obstacles turn into miracles. Um, you know, Helen Keller really inspires me with what she did. And you are super talented, Katie. You have <laughs> yeah. dipped into so many different aspects, you know, from looking at the criminal justice system, you know, advising police officers, you know, maybe that might have an impact on policy, um, you know, reaching out to just the general public at large with your blog, uh, with your art as well to a particular audience and sort of, you know, in a um, visual aesthetic way, sort of trying to communicate uh, and break down those barriers. And I think, you, you know, you are gaining that traction, you are gaining that success in sort of breaking down that stereotypical view of what we have when we look at somebody who might have a schizophrenic disorder, who might be having, you know, certain episodes in a particular moment. And certainly I think there's this myth, there's this myth that there are two types of people in the world, one that are completely sane and one that suffer from mental illness. I think that's a complete myth. Everybody, mental health exists for everybody. And everybody goes through, uh, you know, some form of a mental ch uh, health challenge, whether that's a form of a panic attack, whether that's a form of a depressive uh, episode, whether that's a form of, you know, uh, low self-esteem. A lot of, um, and we were talking about from the female perspective, I find a lot of seemingly sane uh, young ladies, because of the low self-esteem, um, you know, they are projecting, and I'm sure you might have come across that, the people that you came across that were very uptight in their views, that were, you know, full of stereotypes and the taboo words and walking on eggshells, they were actually projecting their own inner state onto yourselves, onto others, whereas you've been very brave, you've taken the bull by the horns, you've researched, you've said, no, I'm going to deal with it. And you have dealt with it. And you've been actually very successful, incredibly successful in dealing with it. And you have a successful journey ahead of you as well. What would you like to see in local, regional, and international communities when it comes to mental health and well-being? I would love to see communities come together more, especially on the smaller level, because I feel like we're fighting to get people together on the state level in the United States and maybe counties and things like that. But we really need, like you need your neighborhood, your community to really back you. And then the policy, especially around states and countries and things like that of just being more supportive or, or at least less discriminatory. Um, I would really love to see people with any kinds of mental illness treated the same way as other people. And I think within a community that's teaching about what it's like, and then as you go up the levels, it's policy um, and things like that. So I, yeah, I would just really love to see policies put into place that legitimately protect people with mental illness, because there are some, at, at least in the US, where it's, depending on what you have, it doesn't even matter. And with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder um, kind of complicate things and put those sorts of rules out the window. So I would love to see things in place that would actually, I would love governments to stand up for these people, to stop 
saying, oh, we support mental health, but not you guys. Um, and I think that happens on every level, really. But I, I think communities need to learn to support and love those with any kind of illness, mental, physical, whatever. Um, and then states and countries and, you know, internationally, we just need to learn how to support them through policy and, and protect them. Fantastic. And I, and I completely agree. I think practical steps need to be taken. You know, um, sometimes I feel mental well-being is um, used as, as sort of a flag or a badge to sort of say, well, well, this is being done. But when you look at the ground reality, you think, well, what is actually being done? You know, even when you look at sort of young lawyers, for example, in certain fields, in certain aspects, in certain communities, where is that understanding, you know, that you're advocating? that you're advocating about. We have somebody like you who is actually living and experiencing that and is a loud and proud voice that we need to hear more of, that we need to give more exposure to, to be heard, who is actually making an impact. And I completely agree with that, you know, um, telling it like it is actually in the sense that where is that on the ground reality? Where is that actual impact? You know, uh, we have these buzzwords about uh, mindfulness and well-being yes they are nice to use but there is a greater depth and a greater meaning behind that which we need to sort of see in action especially for those that are really vulnerable because you know when we talk about our experiences of childhood we didn't know what we were experiencing Katie you didn't know I didn't certainly know as a young carer what we were experiencing we didn't know how to vocalize it we had to somehow get through that, get through the normal uh, daily routine and get through all of that. And I'm just amazed at, you know, at the accomplishments that you've achieved on the way, even with those people that saw you as a risk and even with those people that were walking on eggshells. Um, what would be your message to those people that, you know, as a teenager around you and as a young adult and even now because I'm sure there are some now I certainly have some now around me so what would your message be to them those that are walking on eggshells and you know seeing you through a certain filter and seeing themselves through another light what would be your message to them hmm. I guess I would think One of the things that I, I tend to tell law enforcement officers when I speak to them is um, that there is no difference between myself and someone who is really struggling deeply and, you know, they, they didn't do anything wrong. It's all just circumstances. And just the same way as me and, you know, someone who's really struggling extensively are the same. We are both the same as everybody else everything is just different circumstances. There's no good people, bad people. There's no inherent, you know, badness in any of us, really. There's no inherent anything. We're all people. So you need to look at, you know, more than just symptoms and actions and stereotypes. You need to look at people's hearts. I think that's beautiful. And I agree with you 110%. Um, Katie, because it's so important having that compassion and realizing inside all, all of us, we have that be beating human heart, you know. Um, 
And we all go through good days. We all go through bad days. And having that empathy and compassion without the labels, without putting people into certain boxes, without the taunts, the mockery, uh, the taboo, the stereotyping, that would really make an impact. And that would make a kinder world in which we all can thrive. We can all thrive in. Um, just a few more questions before we wind up. What is your happiest memory or your most positive, the nicest memory that you have in this journey? It could be from any point in time. Um, I don't know. I think... Um... I think there was um, this point in time where all sorts of little things came together. It wasn't anything, you know, major, but I just felt so genuinely cared about and loved and supported that I remember feeling happy to a level where I actually stopped and was like, this isn't mania, right? Like, <laughs> um, but it, it was just a lot of small things all at once because I sort of always, I my boyfriend and I jokingly call it the curse. Anytime something good happens, something worse happens. Um, and it was this moment where I felt like, yeah, that there wasn't there wasn't anything. It was just I had friends, I had family supporting me. My boyfriend was about to move across the country to be with me, and everything for once, just just in that one moment, felt like it kind of came into place. So it wasn't anything totally outrageous. It was kind of a quiet sort of a, a thing. I, I think that's lovely. I, you know, the difference that support can make, it can, it can help you do wonders. It can really help you do wonders. Um, you, touched a, you touched on a thought that I've had a lot of times as well. You kind of think about, now this is going well, what's gonna go wrong? What, what, what is going to go? And this is actually a common theme that not a lot of, it's not talked about, but we all think it and our stomach turns, you know, you, you sort of get this, this premonition, okay, things are going well, what's going to go wrong? What's going to go wrong now? And I do, I used, to, I used to do that a lot. I used to look at, well, what's, what's going to go wrong? Now I realize, no, nothing is going to go wrong. Everything is as it should be. And the obstacles are going to turn into miracles. Things will just get better and better and better because there's that element of hopelessness in what's going to go wrong. Well, life doesn't stop, does it? So it's not the end. If the journey still continues, nothing's going to go wrong. Everything is going to be all right. Um, what would be your message for people that are suffering with uh, you know, mental, um, I wouldn't want to say the word disorder, but mental challenges, what would be your message for them? There is no expiration on recovery. There's no point where you are too sick to ever recover. Even if you are so kind of swamped and just bogged down by symptoms that you can't function, that doesn't mean things have to be like that forever there's a lot of factors that, you know, may have to come into play to help fix things and help create an environment where you can recover, but there is no expiration date on recovery. 
that's amazing. And you can get help at any point in time. You know, you can get help at any point in time. Um, and it's brave. It's brave to do so, you know, because that's that's where change comes into play and things start getting better. And what, what would be your message for, say, carers? What would be your message for carers? I would say a combination of be realistic, but don't give up and take care of yourself for sure. Because there, if you're not really kind of real about and realistic about what is going on, you can't help someone as well. You need to really face what is truly happening. But at the same time, don't give up on them because there is, there's, there's no time where it's too late for recovery. That's always a possibility. So don't ever fully give up. Keep trying, even though there are, for many people, there are just ridiculous numbers of obstacles in the way of them helping their loved one, you know, recover. Um, but then also, yeah, take care of yourself because I, I've had to, um, I've, I've taken care of others as well, um, who I've supported through their own struggles. And I have found that if I don't take care of myself, I, I can't take care of them as well. And I know a lot of people say that and it's kind of cliche, but it is so true in order to help someone else, you need to be taking care of yourself too. That, that's that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, in terms of the the professionals, the healthcare professionals that are you know that are supporting, that are helping, how do you think the system could evolve for the better? What kind of improvements do you think we should be we should be seeing in the future? I think professionals need to listen to people with lived experience. Um, I, I remember one of the reasons that I got started writing about sort of the inside feelings of what certain symptoms feel like is because I got so tired of reading accounts by psychiatrists and, you know, people who have researched this have, you know, fancy degrees and everything, but they didn't really know what it was like. They couldn't really explain it. And a lot of it was sort of like, we think this, and, you know, it seems like it might be this. And so I felt like if they have the answers if they can get and obviously certain symptoms feel different for everyone but if you can get inside someone's mind by listening to someone who has lived it that that can make a huge difference I know um, one thing that I was really happy about was uh, right about the time that I graduated college some of the researchers who I had worked for um, met with me um, to kind of consult on a clinic that they were setting up for first episode psychosis and they wanted to know what helped me and I thought that was really incredible for them to come to someone who lived it you know I wasn't any big name or anything I don't even know if I'd call myself a full-on advocate at the time but for them to come to me knowing me and knowing you know that I had done well to say okay what worked for you what what will you know help these people if you were in this position what would you want out of it and what could have been you know what could have been done better when you were um, really, really struggling. And so I think that is a really, really important thing is I, I think a lot of people with fancy degrees or, you know, brush people with lived experience off as not really being competent sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, just if, if people can listen to those with lived experience, the professionals, I think it would really help them treat their patients better, set up better policies, improve care systems all across the world.